Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 46th edition of Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Um, I'm sure that while you've been excitedly waiting for the return of Databytes, some of you may also have been excitedly waiting for the return of one of TV's greatest sitcoms, Frasier. Hoping a reliable old favourite with terrific comedy is as good as you remember, cerebral, lots of difficult words, and with a pretentious but lovable frontman, it's great to be back at Databytes. I hope the new Frasier is good too. Let's start with some housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents if anyone is still on Twitter. And to put questions to our speakers, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb46, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter or presenters will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 46th Databytes. You can watch the previous 45 on the IFG website. So what's happened since last month? Well, as promised, we published a new report, Doing Data Justice, which drew upon our two Justice Databytes specials. We made several recommendations, described by Dr. Natalie Byram, Justice Data Expert and one of our Databytes speakers, as pragmatic and important. So that's the back cover of the paperback sorted. Now, paying attention to what data there already is would be a good start, such as knowing there was likely to be a severe shortage of prison places, but still having to resort to emergency measures to deal with it. The COVID inquiry has been keeping us busy. I was one of two IFGers, along with Alex Thomas, to give evidence to the inquiry last week. It won't surprise you to hear that my evidence, including 30,000 written words, which is more than Animal Farm, was about data. Now, there are some impressive stories about how government got up to speed, but also a much more depressing one. During my evidence, I was shown this email from Dominic Cummings from March 2020, where he is complaining about the data. I'm sure many of the Databytes audience will empathise with that particular subject line. It does go a little bit mumsnet. Uh, Dom asking if he's being unreasonable and being told that he isn't being unreasonable and he really isn't. Uh, this email complaining about the, the lack of data and the poor quality is just one damning indictment of data issues at the start of the pandemic, of data not being available, not being consistent and ultimately not being usable. Now, one of the big domestic stories of the past month was the warm white wine and beige buffet bonanza that is political party conference season. 
Now, during Conservative Conference, we had the spectacle of a beleaguered leader under pressure from difficult results, begging supporters to stay the course and back him to do his job. Credit to my long-suffering colleague, Alice, for that particular joke. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear, though, that one of the main draws at the Conservative fringe was a rising star, tipped by some for the leadership. She's, lo she's long been an advocate for the importance of data. We'll follow her career with interest. Now, the IFG took some 33 events to the various party conferences. We had a glittering array of speakers engaging in sparkling conversation on a range of topics, including some on AI, perhaps the most politically controversial abbreviation of conference season after HS2. You can find all the recordings of those events on our website. Now, thankfully, given the stresses of conference and the COVID inquiry, I can recycle some of last month's charts. Let's start with by-elections. Now, since we last met, we've had one. There are two more tomorrow. Labour won Rutherglen and Hamilton West from the SNP. Now, if we look at all by-elections since 1979, where the seat changed hands, the 92 to 97 Parliament currently holds the post-79 records for changes, that's nine, and government defeats, that's eight. We're now at eight changes and six government defeats, so tomorrow's by-elections could equal or even break those records. Rutherglen saw a 20% swing from SNP to Labour, joining an elite group. Six of those 20% or more swing by-elections have been this Parliament. You may recall that Rutherglen was prompted by a recall. If Parliament confirms a recommended sanction against Peter Bone for bullying, we'll have another recall referendum, and around 8,000 signatures would prompt yet another by-election. His loss of the Conservative whip and the defection of Lisa Cameron from the SNP to Conservatives, one of four direct def defections and a third from the SNP this Parliament, cements this Parliament's third place in total changes of party allegiance. Now, I mentioned AI earlier, and we were given a stark reminder of the potential horrors of generative AI last week. Yes, the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology imagined what their leadership team would have looked like in school yearbook-style photos from the 1990s. There's Secretary of State, Michelle Donnellan, Permanent Secretary, Sarah Munby, Minister for AI, Viscount Camrose, Science Minister George Freeman, Digital Economy Minister Paul Scully, <laughs> and last but definitely not least, Data Minister John Whittingdale. Now, the latter two look like they've come from some particularly eclectic 1990s boy band. Obviously, I asked ChatGPT to suggest some names for a decent ministerial boy band. They weren't great, um, though I did like the sound of science. It didn't suggest boys to ministers, or indeed, wrong direction. So, take that, AI. Fair play to decent ministers for being brave enough to put themselves through that, though. Though perhaps the bravest thing about it is a Conservative government struggling in the polls, reminding us all of the 1990s. Turning to tonight, our first speaker is Craig Campbell from the Greater London Authority on adaptive reuse of data for adaptive reuse of high streets. Second up will be Caroline Kempner from the Department for Education on automated daily school attendance data. 
Then we'll hear from Becky Tinsley and Emma Hickman from the Office for National Statistics on ONS's work on subnational stats and the ONS local service. And our final speaker this evening will be Pratik Butch from Policy Lab on their approach to crowdsourcing knowledge. If you want to make long-term decisions for a brighter future that won't cost you billions of pounds, make sure you put the next few data bytes in your diaries on Wednesdays the 8th of November and 6th of December. If you don't want data bytes to get cancelled, we need sponsors. Thanks to those who've already got in touch expressing an interest, but very much the more the merrier. Drop Pratesh a line if you might like your name up here in lights. And as ever, if you might be interested in speaking, please get in touch with me. Now that's more than enough from me. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome our first speaker, Craig, to the stage. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much to Gavin and Institute for Government for the invitation to be here tonight. My name is Craig Campbell, and I'm the program manager for the High Streets Data Service at the Greater London Authority. The High Streets Data Service is a data sharing partnership between the GLA, London boroughs, and business improvement districts, and is a partnership which leverages the collective capacity of a bunch of London institutions pooling resources and collaborating in order to make data available from private industry that otherwise would not be available at the local level which I think indeed was a question that came up in the last iteration of Data Bytes on how do you afford expensive mobility data? So I'm going to hopefully provide the answer here. So you've likely seen a headline like this decrying the death of the British high street. And indeed the high street does face many challenges. There's been a gradual shift from purchasing in person to e-commerce online. There's been a generational shift where young people are far less likely uh, to want to do that multi-visit mooching from store to store, have a preference to visit a single store. There's been a cost of living crisis. Uh, people's disposable income has decreased. And all of that is before COVID and the effects of removing people literally from the high street. But the high street is not dead. 90% of Londoners live within a 10 minute walk of their high street. The high streets provide one and a half million jobs for Londoners. You probably, if you are a Londoner, have a relationship with your local high street. High streets are where Londoners live, work, and socialize, and therefore where data is in great abundance. And we can use that data to develop a fresh lens on the opportunities facing high streets. That data includes survey data on the business mix within a high street, which can help us understand where there are gaps in essential services, opportunities for things like childcare and health services. It includes granular mobility data on uh, visitor and worker footfall, which can help develop uh, more targeted strategies on where, when, and how to bring tourists back to the high street or workers back to the offices. And it includes things like transportation data and environmental data, which help put the context of a single high street in the wider London story. So it was this promise of data in high streets which led to the creation of the High Streets Data Service in 2021. Uh, there are 600 high streets across London. This program was born out of uh, the recovery mission to COVID-19 in order to give these 600 high streets a better sense of the extent to which activity levels were returning to normal following lockdowns. It's a partnership between the Mayor of London, London boroughs, and business improvement districts, as I mentioned, and utilizes high quality 
anonymized data from private suppliers uh, in order to guide policy strategy investment on high streets. So how does it work? It's a collective purchasing partnership. We have 30 different members in our network, which include 20 London Borough Councils and 10 business improvement districts. They each provide a membership fee to the GLA, which coordinates the service. We then take that pooled set of resources to market where we buy the data that's in highest demand from uh, our member organizations. And for the high streets practitioners, that includes footfall data and dwell time visitor catchment, which we get from British Telecom. It includes spending data, uh, consumer credit spend, which we get from MasterCard. And it includes the on-the-ground uh, business survey, which we get from Experian. So in turn, we purchase that data. It comes back to the GLA through the clever people uh, in the city intelligence unit, the GLA who curate, analyze, develop products and visualizations in order to hand back to our member network uh, in the boroughs and the bids. So we provide tools and web apps which uh, end users can access. We also provide raw data for uh, the organizations that have more of a data science workbench uh, and run a community of practice in order to connect up the different members of the network. So how is it used? Uh, we have seen the data applied at every stage of the policymaking and project delivery lifecycle from strategy development to policy implementation uh, to monitoring and evaluation. And just important to say that the usage of the data, the actual uptake, solving an individual's analytical problem end to end is the, the key question that, we, that, that keeps us up at night. Uh, I'm going to give quickly, as time permits, examples of each of the three. Uh, the first is on strategy setting. So what you're seeing here is a classification of all of those 600 London high streets into uh, a classification of struggling, adaptable, or resilient, dependent on how quickly they were able to return to pre-COVID activity levels following the lockdowns in 2020 and 2021. And so the sand key shows the shift from uh, the first lockdown recovery profile to the second lending recovery profile. And in general, it's a positive trend. Struggling goes to adaptable. Uh, adaptable goes to resilient. There are some remaining struggling holdouts. But this is the type of analysis which has informed the Greater London authorities, the, the good growth directorates, investment strategies, and which high streets and which types of high streets to support. What you're seeing here is a footfall density map across the boundaries of Greater London, where color and uh, height of each of these bars represents visitor footfall in that area on a Saturday afternoon. Predictably, you're seeing central London uh, being the most busy with a notable outlier in southwest London. Uh, for the rugby fans, that's Twickenham on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, and this is a, a high gloss visualization, but this type of footfall density mapping, looking at hot spots and cold spots, has very practical applications with our users, which include looking at the busiest areas of a high street in order to prioritize that for 5G mobile broadband deployment, put the, the, uh, the equipment where the most people are. On the cold spot side, we look at the uh, areas, or sorry, the times of day which are the quietest in order to prioritize residential waste pickup in a way that would be the least disruptive. And finally, the data is used at the end of the policy 
development lifecycle for monitoring and evaluation. And so this example is uh, a recent analysis by uh, my colleague Lauren looking at the implementation of a low traffic neighborhood traffic filters in Haringey uh, and looking at the spend profile before and after that. Um, what this I would say is, is our top use case of the typical monitoring and evaluation. Um, I think it's safe to say that one of the biggest challenges that we face as data professionals in government is getting uptake and usage of our reports and tools. We invest a lot of effort into engaging and activating our user base. That includes bi-monthly uh, member sessions where we present case studies, uh, different members of the network show how they've been using the data. Uh, that includes a incubator program that we're currently running uh, in partnership with ONS Local, among others, uh, which is taking eight teams through an end-to-end -end data science lifecycle journey of forming a hypothesis, testing it with data, and delivering the results to their audiences, creating, carving out space to support that through a mentorship program. And finally, a, a recent example during London Data Week in July was our Data in the High Streets pop-up, which put the data that we're using, analyzing behind our computer screens back into the heart of a real high street, in this case, a digital powered pop-up in Shoreditch High Street. Um, here you have Amy LeMay, who's the, uh, the mayor's nightlife star uh, with our borough and bid users with this great visualization behind her, Shoreditch High Street on the other side. And I think speaks to exactly what we're trying to achieve of the connection between the policy experts the practitioners, and the actual implementation on the ground. So final thing to say, I've run out of time, is just the High Streets Data Service is part of a network of, or, or a portfolio of data services at the Greater London Authority. Uh, data for London is a new program being led by Theo Blackwell, the Chief Digital Officer, uh, and guided by an advisory board of experts, uh, which aims to improve the foundations, the plumbing of the platform, uh, where this data is shared, the ethics and governance uh, through data leadership and, and vision and strategy. But these types of services cut through the middle of that and are kind of the key demonstrators of, of the vision of that strategy. So thank you for your questions. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, I'll come to the audience in the room first, but just to remind people watching us online, uh, you can put your questions via Slido, and if you're not already on the Slido page, it's bit.ly slash slidodb46. For those of you in the room, please do keep questions short, as we will be against the clock. Wait for the mic to come to you, and please do tell us who you are and where you're from. If you can, do remember that we are on the record. So who would like to ask the first question in the room? Ollie Cliftonmore from DFE. Um, loads of loads of data there. I was just wondering what I love as an analyst, like where are the unintuitive findings? Like what, what's when you bring this data, what, what's the things that surprised you um, from putting all this data together? I think looking for unintuitive results or non-obvious results is one of the biggest challenges of a program like this. And uh, I would say in general, the success of the program has been built on a whole lot of confirming assumptions and maybe a, a smaller portfolio of 
uh, of surprising results. Um, I would say on the, uh, that first graphic that I showed of the resiliency of high streets from first lockdown to the next, the general trend toward increasingly resilient high streets from one to the next was a surprising and, and very exciting result for us at the GLA. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to go online for the next one. This is Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Uh, the minute you mentioned LTN, I knew somebody would ask this. Um, what was the conclusion of the LTN evaluation? So the caveat here is this was not all LTNs. This was a very limited subset, a, a case study on a couple of recent LTNs. Uh, the result, uh, building on the last question, was that there was no appreciable improvement or decrease in spending levels or other high street activity as a result of the LTN implementation. The analysis was focused on the 40 days pre and post LTN, and so it is an immediate effect, whereas uh, I think in general, because it was recent, we're more interested in the three and six month effects. Uh, but even though that time series had a drift up, when you look at it statistically, there's not a significant uh, uh, change one way or the other, which in fact is, you know, uh, relative to some of what we're hearing from government, a, a good news finding that there isn't an immediate tank in activity. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back into the room for the next question. Hands up if you'd like to ask it. Over there. Hello, I'm Oakley Denson, I'm from Buckinghamshire. And um, I wanted to ask, how, how exactly did you define like a struggling or resilient high street, uh, sort of statistically? Like, what was the meaning of those terms? It was... The analysis predated me, but um, I think it was defined by the extent to which the decreases that all high streets experienced as a result of lockdown essentially got locked in over time. And so a struggling one decreased and then did not return back to a normal level. Um, I couldn't tell you the distinction exactly between uh, adaptable and, and struggling, but that was sort of the gradation of those different categories. Thanks. Um, we'll go online for the next question. This is from Georgina. Good evening to you. Are there plans to roll this kind of work out wider than London? Uh, I work for the Greater London Authority, so our scope is uh, Greater London. Uh, I think in conversation with our colleagues at ONS and other similar organizations, we'd love to explore if the similar model, uh, the types of data we're accessing, uh, is something that could be scaled to other areas. Certainly, we've gotten interest from uh, other subnational regional bodies that are interested in replicating the work that we've done. Uh, but probably at, at this stage, our next steps are expanding the service to some other organizations within London before looking at uh, outside of the London boundaries. Great, thanks. And we've got another online question from Anonymous. How does footfall data take account of populations who don't have a phone or who are not connected? So for example, the digitally excluded by wealth or age? That's a great question. Um, in our case, our suppliers, BT, have a statistical methodology where they essentially are multiplying up their users to the full population. So BT has roughly a third of the mobile phone market. Again, this is people who, who do have phones. And using their information on their market share combined with 
census information on the distribution of uh, different populations. They essentially, it's a bit more sophisticated than taking their numbers and multiplying by three. It's, it's layering on those population levels. Um, and I think that there is some accounting in that methodology for digitally excluded people. Uh, but I think in this work in, in general, the data is never perfect and we are going to see some errors in that regard. Excellent, thanks. Let's come back into the room for the next question. Uh, Philip Nye from uh, Data Scientist at the IFG. That was a really fascinating talk. Uh, yeah, lot, lots of interest in there. And uh, appreciate, appreciate what you're saying about uh, having to kind of communicate what you can do to, to colleagues in the GLA. I'm just wondering, to what extent do you have to uh, kind of show a, a return on investment as a unit in, in what you're doing? And, and how do you go about showing that? Another excellent question. Um, some of our ROI is built in to our collective purchasing structure, which I think is one of the elegant uh, kind of commercial models that we've achieved. We have an annual subscription uh, term for these 30 organizations. And so there's just a key KPI of the number of organizations that are deciding that the data we give them is in turn valuable enough to their users and the work that they're doing in order to come back year to year, continue paying that fee. So I think that's a benefit of making a service not exactly for free. Um, but I think, again, one of the key challenges we face as data professionals is uh, illustrating ROI for better decision making and closing that loop and, and playing that back. And it's something that we think and talk about a lot, but haven't perfected yet. Thanks. We've probably got time for another question. Anyone in the room? Uh, there, yes. Um, hi, Rebecca from DK Strategy. Um, I was just wondering if there are any examples of private organizations who were um, keen to uh, give this data out for free rather than charging uh, like local authorities to use it um, if it is for the greater good? There have been uh, projects through the service with the Ellen Turing Institute to look at other sources of uh, footfall information, which would be kind of first party data that the council owns. Um, we've not gone the data philanthropy route of doing an open call for organizations that might be willing to contribute data. I think because we owe our uh, users and the member organizations the reliability of something that will persist from year to year the commercial solution has been uh, the right one for this problem. Uh, but certainly, you know, if there are, looking at my camera here, if there are private organizations that are interested in collaborating this way, we'd be very open to the conversation. Great, I'm gonna squeeze in a very quick final question from Tom King, evening to you, Tom. Are other major cities around the world looking at uh, high streets in this way, or do they use different data sources? Uh, I don't think that every other city around the world has a high street in the way that British high streets uh, are so iconic and unique. Um, as I said, there are other cities across the UK that have contacted us and are interested in this model. Um, I, I think, speaking with our suppliers, there are similar data sharing arrangements in other major cities, but uh, I couldn't speak for 
the likes of New York or, or Tokyo here. Great. Well, Craig, thank you very much for getting us off to a brilliant start this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. And our next speaker tonight is Caroline. I was so busy trying to avoid the iPad that I nearly knocked the glass over. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Caroline Kempner. I'm here from the Department for Education. I'm the Head of Data Transformation. I'm really delighted to be here today to talk to you about our flagship data modernization program in the department, which is all about massively improving the flow of data on pupil attendance in England around the system. And by the system, I mean between schools, local authorities, multi-academy trusts, and the department. So why is this important? Uh, obviously during COVID, children weren't largely at school, so it was an unprecedented shock to education. But since then, and you've probably seen this in the news, there's been a lot of reporting on this from the Children's Commissioner. There was an Education Select Committee report a couple of weeks ago on persistent absence. Attendance remains not much better than it was during COVID, sort of immediately after COVID. We have a problem with absence of pupils in schools, and you'll see some of those figures up there. Over 20% of pupils are what's called persistently absent last year. That means they're missing 10% or more of sessions during the year, which is a lot of schooling missed. We know there's a link between attendance and later on attainment. Um, and there's also another figure there, which we've only known since we've been doing this automated project I'm going to tell you about, which is that for pupils who had at least one day of absence in the first week of term last year, their rate of persistent absence is more than double the national rate. So the sort of back to school beginnings of term are really important. As you can understand, if you miss that first part of term, it's more difficult to go back to school. So what we're showing you here is that historically and still now, traditionally, we collect information three times a year from schools after the event in what we call the school census. So we do that termly, it's after the event, and by the time it's ready for analysis, it can be up to eight months after the actual event. So obviously during COVID, you know, this, we needed to know what was going on uh, in pupil attendance. And so school, we ask schools to fill out a, a spreadsheet return manually. Clearly not sustainable. We were asked to rapidly, at pace, taking a bit of risk if we needed to, automate an, a sort of no burden way of getting information in from schools and providing useful products out to them and others across the system to show what was happening with attendance. So that's what we've done. Um, we have spent a lot of time, um, there's a little thing at the bottom there, on data protection, on data privacy. We've published, we've published our DPIA, and really importantly, we've published uh, information to schools about how we will and won't use this information. 
Um, bit of a techie diagram there for anyone who's interested. I'm just going to talk about the top of this. So this is voluntary. We now have 86 of schools in England voluntarily participating in this. We're bringing in data from, there are about 16 schools management information systems. Uh, we've, we've got a commercial contract with a data integrator who are known to schools called WAND. And we have basically a huge data pipeline that we've built uh, using brilliant architects and engineers. We're bringing in 15 million records of data a day, and we're now up to 9 billion records in total. And we're then pumping that out in two different ways, which I'm going to show you. So the first way is we have a secure daily dashboard that we make available to schools, to local authorities, and multi-academy trusts. Now, it's, the, it's a kind of typical Power BI type dashboard. I think the really important thing to say here is that local authorities see all the information down to pupil level for schools in their area who are participating. Same for trusts, multi-academy trusts. Uh, and schools see both, so of all these people, they see a sort of dashboard, which is the sort of the one on the left, you know, what's your overall attendance, absence looking like? And we're also collecting information on pupil characteristics, so you can filter that by, by age, by gender, by ethnicity, by special educational needs, and lots of other characteristics. So you can really target on groups of vulnerable children where we know that attendance rates are much lower. We've got visualizations that you'd expect, you know, and people can tune those to how they want to see things. And, you know, people can now compare back to previous academic years. So we started this in early 2022. Now this quote here, I've put this up because I have never, this is never had any, any feedback like this, you know, in all the years that I've been working on data projects. And I'll just read it out for those of you maybe online who can't see this. This is from a local authority who are the biggest users. I would like to express our profound joy how many data projects have you heard would give people <laughs> profound joy in having access to any attendance data that is current? So local authorities have responsibilities to both work with individual vulnerable children and to work with schools on school improvement. So for the first time for many local authorities, this is giving them really up-to-date information on what's going on. So we're delighted with that. The second big project that we've got is a public dashboard. If you Google attendance statistics, you can find this. This is published fortnightly, um, and it gives at national, regional, and local authority level um, attendance rates, authorized and unauthorized absence rates. And, and you know, it's a dashboard, and you can filter and play with it and look at different parts of the country. What's really interesting with this is, you know, we've built in a two-week lag because for the first time in DfE, we're bringing in operational data from schools. So previously, we've always had this sort of cleansed, huge long process in schools and local authorities to cleanse data and bring it in. And now we're bringing in operational data. So we've built in this two-week lag in order for schools to update. You know, they might find more information from a parent about, you know, why a child is off school. So we agreed with schools that we will be building this lag. Now, I had a very extended train journey to get here. So while I was on it, I just had a little think about why do we think this has been successful? I mean, there's lots more to do, don't get me wrong. 
I think the first thing is that when we were doing this, we prioritised services back to the sector over internal reporting. It took a lot of discussion to do that, and we're really pleased that we did that. Uh, the second thing is that we've delivered it with a blended team of permanent staff and contractors. Um, so we've got enough permanent team oversight across all the different types of teams that we need. We've got a very good um, relationship and very strong team across technical, data architects, data engineers and testers, data modelers, as well as a strong product team, user research, content, and a very good relationship with the policy team on attendance, which is absolutely essential, obviously, as well as statisticians. Um, fourthly, we had ministerial, strong ministerial backing to do this for, for obvious reasons. So from our point of view, it was a fantastic lever to do a big data modernization um, project. Uh, fifthly, we are working very closely with sector representatives all the way through and continue to do so on data quality and understanding what bringing in operational data means for data quality. And then the last thing which I mentioned previously was we have been really, really clear and we have published what we've called data collection principles to schools where we've said, because this is a new thing, new operational data, we want to take you on the journey with us. This is what we will use this data for and this is what we won't use it for. Thank you very much. Thank you, Caroline. <clears throat> um, a reminder to those of you watching us online, it's bit.ly slash slidodb46 if you're not already there. Uh, and I will start with an online question. So this is from Anonymous. Um, are you working with the respective bodies in the devolved administrations to allow for harmonised comparable school attendance data across the UK? Um, we have had conversations with colleagues in Wales to explain to them uh, what we are doing. We are not yet working um, sort of fully with the devolved administrations, but I can see that that would be helpful. Thanks. Uh, we'll come to the room for the next question. Um, over back. Ollie from old DfE, different part of DfE. Um, really good you got 86%. What about the other 14? Are they unable, unwilling or unaware? Um, could, could be any of those and for a variety of reasons. So we are working all the time with our user researchers to find out, you know, if people aren't participating, what's their reason. Now, some um, schools and trusts are very data mature and so they have access to other tools. Some of the tools they get from their management information systems or other things that they buy may provide them with what they need. Um, originally, some people had concerns about data protection, which I think we've predominantly answered. So there are a variety of reasons why people are choosing not to participate. Thanks. I'll go online for the next one. Georgina wonders if that back-to-school effect you mentioned uh, takes into account the spike in health conditions that often occur at the start of term. Apparently, asthma attacks often spike in September. Yes. I mean, one of the things about having this data is we can absolutely see the impact of illness. So, like, remember last winter, there was the sort of, I think we called it the triple whatever, where we had sort of COVID and respiratory diseases and, you know, attendance fell off a cliff really just before Christmas and you could absolutely see that. So 
yeah, I mean, when you say take it into account, I'm not sure you, uh, but you know, we can see that from the figures very, very clearly when there's illness that's affecting absence as opposed to other factors. Thanks. Uh, let's come back into the room. We've got a question over there. Uh, wait for the mic. My name is Marzi and I work at a university. So we have the same kind of system for universities, like keeping track of that attendance. And you mentioned some filters or criteria that you use, one of them being ethnicity. Um, I'm not sure how you use that. Uh, like, okay, you filter a student by their ethnicity and then what? Like, how do you decide to use the data? Thank you. So within a school, they will be monitoring different groups of students according to lots of different characteristics because they find that different groups of students have different sort of um, likelihood of attending and there's certain sort of hotspots. Um, I mean, actually sort of white um, boys from certain types of families have lower attendance rates than other groups, for example. So people are using this information in different ways. What it helps us do is understand all the different factors that might be contributing to why pupils aren't attending. It, Great, thank you. Um, I'll go online again. Uh, another question from Tom King. Are local authorities using the current data to target their work and are they able to evaluate impact robustly? Um, they are using it. There are a few local authorities who are not... Well, we know that 90% of local authorities are using that secure dashboard I showed you. Um, they, people who are not may also be using the public dashboard. In terms of evaluating impact, that's obviously something we're keen to do. At the moment, we have case studies and we have testimonials. We don't have sort of... Uh, ev evaluation in a very sort of rigorous way yet. Thanks. Uh, we'll come back to the room again. Uh, we've got a question over in the corner. Uh, hi, I'm Sophia from the Open Data Institute. Um, I'm just curious, you mentioned about uh, some data protection concerns and steps that you've been taking to mitigate those. And I was uh, wondering kind of what the, the themes of those concerns are and if there have been any uh, significant issues. Uh, there have not been any issues. Um, I think because we're bringing in this daily data, um, schools and local authorities are, were rightly wanting to know what arrangements we had in place, um, you know, for access within DfE, um, for making sure the right people see the right information through that secure reporting. Um, we didn't need to, but we chose to publish our DPIA. So it was those sorts of questions that people were rightly asking and that there have not been any issues. Thanks. I might stay in the room uh, for the next one. Um, go to the corner and then we'll come down to the front. Are you aware of um, any coordinated parallel efforts among the 86% of schools who are using the program to what they can do better with all of this influx of data? You know, now that they're on, the, uh, they're looking at the same data. Um, they're they're a team. Um, some of them, I imagine, are, must be overwhelmed. Um, are, is there the the process part of it as well? So, because there are nearly nine, well over nineteen thousand schools now who are using this, it, it won't you know they won't be grouping together quite like that. But there are 
your point about schools being overwhelmed is absolutely right. So there are some schools we know who haven't had the capacity yet to use this information. So this is part of what we're working with policy colleagues on. So there are now attendance advisors who are working with groups of schools and they, those are the sorts of people who are championing this kind of information. So where a school doesn't have easy access to this information, they can show them the best way to do this. Because I think you're right, there is an issue about it's all very well as providing this tool, but if you're you know, a small primary school, how do you, you know, you've got a million and one other things to do. We want, need to make it as easy as possible for people to use it. And I think we've still got some way to go on that front. Thanks. I'd like to squeeze in the final two questions down the front. So if we keep the questions and answers short, that would be great. Thanks. Uh, so there first and then... Oh, uh, Bryn uh, from the Royal College of GPs. Um, is there any concern around having local authorities sort of compared against one, each, uh, one another when obviously absence is correlated with kind of poverty and um, uh, yeah, more uh, least well-off kids are less likely to go to school and whatnot. Are there any concerns around comparing local authorities to each other when it might look as if they're doing something wrong but it's actually just they've got a poorer population with higher poverty? So we've always published attendance sort of down to local authority level. Um, this is just more frequent. Um, so I, so far, what the feedback we're getting is that actually this is really welcome because, because it's you know, so up to date compared to what was available previously. And because there's such a problem at the moment, people are keen to see this. I think one of the things that we can do as we have this information is develop more sophisticated benchmarking products securely to local authorities and indeed to schools so that we can do similar LAs, that kind of thing, which we haven't yet uh, quite had time to develop. Thanks. And a very quick final question just there. Um, Jen Person, Defender to me. So um, the data protection impact assessment that you mentioned after it was kind of required by the Information Commissioner's Office um, didn't do a lot of forward looking. Um, but one of the concerns around this data is it could be used, as Michael Gove had suggested, that parents of truanting children could have child benefits stopped. Is that something the department's been thinking about, talking about, had any discussion of? Uh, no, there is no discussion about sharing this with other government departments. Well, a very clear answer to finish on. And um, you mentioned profound joy in your uh, presentation. That's certainly something we aim for at Databytes. <laughs> but Caroline, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we now go to our third presentation, and that is from Becky and Emma. Absolutely uh, delighted to be here. I'm, I'm Emma Hickman. I head up subnational statistics and analysis in ONS. And Becky is, we're going to have four minutes each. Becky's going to follow me uh, and do four minutes on ONS local and coherence. Um, so what I wanted to speak to you about this evening is a little bit about, you know, where did this all start in ONS? There's been a recent, um, you know, a huge uptick in interest in subnational statistics um, and analysis, uh, really understanding those local insights as a result of levelling up. Uh, policy and the levelling up by paper. But in ONS, actually, this goes a lot further back. Um, 
In 2004, we had the Allsop review, and in uh, 2016, we had the Bean review. Uh, these were both kind of really big reviews of economic statistics, um, and both of them had sections that were really focused on regional statistics um, and developing kind of better, better statistics in this space. Ahead of the white paper in December 2021, um, as my division was forming, uh, we led across the government statistical service on a subnational data strategy. And that was there to kind of guide you know, the whole of the government statistical service in really thinking about how we deliver better subnational data right across the statistical system in the UK. Uh, the three ambitions of the subnational data strategy are to improve the granularity, and we talk there about geographic granularity, the timeliness and the harmonisation of data, um, as I said, kind of across the UK. We really focus on building capability to do that kind of geospatial analysis um, and understand kind of how to use geography and analysis. And we really want to improve the dissemination of this information. So quite often you'll find that... Uh, you know, if you want local labour market statistics, you'll have to go and find the national ones and then dig down to understand the local ones. Um, but actually, if you want local education information, you have to go on the DfE website and dig down to kind of find that as well. So we've done quite a lot of thinking about, you know, how can we actually make it easier for local users to access um, information? We also supported the levelling up task force in developing the evidence base of the white paper and played quite an advisory role in terms of how they selected the metrics um, that were fed into that. And alongside that, we published um, this as a sort of interactive product on our website. Uh, we call this a subnational indicators explorer, and that gets updated on a quarterly basis. And it brings together data from right across government at local authority levels uh, and kind of each of the themes in the levelling up white paper. Um, and it is a benchmarking tool so that local authorities can see um, where they sit uh, compared to other local authorities there as well. And then from this, uh, we established, with, in collaboration with the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communi Communities, a leveling up subnational data project that has kind of really accelerated our work in the subnational space, which I'm going to talk to you about now. So the first thing we've been doing um, over the last sort of year, couple of years is having a real uh, focus on ensuring that we're publishing meaningful statistics for local areas. So quite often geographies are focused on administrative boundaries um, and actually really sometimes they don't really make sense to people. So we've got a whole series of um, publications that we've released on towns because most people live or work in a town. Um, and most recently, that's been actually an update on the characteristics of the people who live in uh, different towns across the UK um, by kind of size category. Um, and that's uh, based on the, the latest census information. But we've also looked at things like the differences between, um, you know, coastal, uh, coastal towns uh, and non-coastal towns. We've looked at things like industrial structure in, in towns, um, employment growth. So we see a lot of employment growth is actually happening within two kilometres of the town boundary rather than in town centres. So we've got lots of insights like that. Um, and then the other really big kind of innovation that we've had in this space uh, is to, uh, we're, we're looking at how we break down economic statistics of very, very granular levels of geography. Um, we've done this to lower layer super output area um, to use as a building block. And the idea of that is that you can kind of create your own geography. So if you're really interested in what productivity looks like uh, along the West Midlands metro, we can, you can map 
um, that line and kind of understand changes in, in GVA, um, which is gross value added over time. And this has really created a step change in how policymakers can evaluate those kind of geospatial policies where they are meant to kind of have a very local, a very sort of localised impact. We are also innovating with like lots of new and different data sources. Um, so I'm going to have a plug here. Um, we have been working uh, with a number of providers of financial transactions data for some time. Um, we already publish real-time uh, insights on consumer spending, direct debits and business transactions uh, in our real-time indicators release. But um, for the first time tomorrow, uh, we will be releasing kind of um, postcode area uh, information. So we've got suddenly a really kind of good level of granularity. Um, so do, do keep an eye out for that because there's some really um, useful and interesting insights in that. We've also been doing analysis on how uh, education outcomes, so how you do in school um, and how you do in, through university, so throughout your school life, and thinking about internal migration. So how do you, how do you move around different parts of the country and what does that mean? Um, so we've kind of looked at the graduate share um, in certain places and looked to understand whether that's because places are retaining graduates um, or whether it's because lots of graduates are kind of moving into an area after they've graduated. And we do kind of do some analysis of non-graduates as well. And then finally, we've been able to use lots of different kind of new administrative data sources um, to be able to produce more spatially granular breakdowns of public sector expenditure, um, which are, of course, always of interest uh, in the policy space. And then finally, I talked earlier about disseminating our statistics in a much better way. Um, one of the projects that we've done uh, in the last year is um, some cluster analysis to identify uh, similar local authorities. So far, we just based that on the levelling up metrics, um, but we are kind of looking to improve that methodology uh, with an idea to kind of build that into some of the benchmarking that we do when local authorities want to compare themselves with each other so that we can have a group of kind of similar um, local authorities. So really interested in talking to Caroline about that a bit more. Um, and also, uh, building on the work that we did on the Subnational Indicators Explorer, uh, we are really, really keen uh, to... Uh, we, to make sure the user journey on the ONS website is much more straightforward. Um, and so what we've developed is an area hub. So you can go to a page called Find My Geographic Area on our website. You can type in where you live and you can, um, and, yeah, you can get all the statistics that we have on that. So I'm going to hand over to Becky. And <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm very conscious of the time, so I'm going to give you a bit of a whistle-stop tour of um, the things that my team do. Um, so we talked talk briefly about coherence. Um, there was a question in the audience earlier for Caroline about the importance of uh, understanding and how we can compare statistics across the four UK nations. So half of my team are responsible for being able to do that. So thinking about what UK data there is that exists and also being able to explain when things are coherent and when you can compare them and when they can't be compared. Head. So that's one big strand of the work and it really talks to the like, local area data that, that Emma was talking about, but taking it up and comparing it across those four countries. 
ONS Local has been in place um, for nearly a year now. So we've had the full service up and running um, in England since uh, March, and we are now uh, fully present in the four uh, countries as well. So we have got a dedicated team of analysts who are based throughout uh, the English regions and in uh, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. And we've got um, a role to work really closely with local areas to really understand what user needs they have, what data needs they have, what capability building they need to have, how can they make better informed decisions at the local area? We've got topic specialists across our team so that they can reach out across um, ONS and across the government um, statistical service to be able to provide those connections and to build those, um, those data insights. We've got four pillars that I'm not going to focus on because I'm going to actually illustrate um, what the exam some, exa some sort of real life examples that uh, um, analysts have been doing. So I've used animation, I can't resist a bit of animation, and we did test that it worked earlier. So evolving the impact of the ONS local service. So we've been up and running, as I said, in England uh, since March, and now fully operational across the UK. So what sorts of things do we do? So there was a bit of a plug from Craig earlier about the work that we've been doing um, with, um, with GLA about uh, sort of knowledge building and ca uh, capability building. So we run um, a series of ONS local um, how-to uh, seminars, um, webinars um, that we have set up with our data science campus to help local areas um, have the, sc the skills and the tools that they need. Um, so how do they uh, use APIs to uh, produce dashboards? How do they produce dashboards? But also um, an ONS local presents um, webinar series as well. So this is about exploring how um, different statistics are produced across ONS, introducing them to those concepts, but also introducing them to um, local initiatives as well, making those connections. Some case studies, so some new analysis um, and insights that we've been providing. This is just a very small selection of them. Um, so they range from understanding digital connectivity to inform broadband um, infrastructure investment. So looking at rather than the top level local authority, how does that vary across those local areas? Um, supporting devolution priorities by providing in insights on employment alongside businesses in local areas. Um, working with uh, Scottish Enterprise to provide information about the distribution of students across the labour market. And finally, understanding what those emerging data gaps are. What gaps do we as statisticians need to step into to fill to provide um, those insights to local areas? And those are things around local tourism and the visitor economy, and that really relates um, to what Craig was saying earlier. Second homes, um, what, how does that compare in rural areas? And what area is like mine? Because it might not be the one that's right next to you geographically. And then understanding more about uh, digital exclusion and connectivity. I'm going to wrap it up there, but I've just wanted to make sure that we were highlighting the services that we offer, but we'd be really happy to come back and do some future sessions on some of those more specific projects that we've got. Thank you. Emma and Becky, thank you very much. I think that's the first time we've seen the clicker used as a relay baton <laughs> in, uh, in data which is great. Um, a reminder to those of you watching us online, not that you should need it by now. If you're not already on Slido, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB46, capital S, capital DB. Uh, let's start in the room this time. Who'd like to ask the first question? Got one there. Hi, my name's Georgia from LSE. Um, I'm just wondering how you uh, prioritize the different data sources, the new data sources that you're bringing in, um, and do you, yeah, how does that process work in terms of what your target areas are? Okay. Thank you. Um, 
So I think we, we sort of firstly focus on data sources that we think will give us really high value in terms of being able to feed into kind of multiple products across um, ONS. And so where we've got kind of a, a number of really, really strong use cases. Um, so financial transactions is definitely one of those, given um, you know, the sort of real-time nature of it and the fact that kind of consumer spending really feeds into a lot of economic statistics and not just subnational. Um, I think that, you know, that, that's probably enough uh, to say, really. But we also kind of you know, check the quality uh, before we kind of use or publish uh, any data sources that we bring in. Great. I'll go online for the next one. Um, so Anonymous asks... How does this work feed into the ONS's proposed changes to population statistics, or how could it be impacted by those potential changes? Uh, and if you want more on that, I think Databytes 44, we had a presentation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so one of the really important things I think is with, for, for our um, local analysts to be working with those local areas to make sure that they know what's happening, make sure that we're making those connections across ONS so that people feel informed to um, respond to that consultation which is currently live and I believe it closes next week. Um, so working with local users as well to understand what they, their needs are so that we can feed those back in and inform um, other activities that are happening across ONS. Great, thank you. Let's uh, come back to the room for the next question. Or I will go back online. Um, Anonymous, uh, who knows if it's a different one, uh, says, great work. Uh, with all the changes to ONS publications and work, how can we trust relying on the ONS local service without worrying what happens if the plug gets pulled? So I think part of the um, remit of the ONS local service is actually to be really responsive. Um, so to make sure that, that we're listening to what local users need and we're feeding that back into ONS so that we can change those priorities and kind of work hand in club with those changes that we're making to the statistics that we produce to make sure that they're as useful and as relevant as they can be. I would also just add across the subnational space, um, you know, I think... It, you know, without, without kind of wanting to kind of predict the outcome of the next election, we see kind of greater devolution as something that will continue. Um, and, and so, you know, having really great subnational data is going to be really, really important to make sure that the decision-making at all levels, both in central and in local government, are really kind of able to, um, you know, to kind of be, uh, like, used in the right way. Um, and so I think that that gives us a level of sustainability in the work that we're, we're doing across um, subnational and local. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back to the room for the next question. Got another one. Um, yeah, so towards the end, you talked about the, the areas that didn't have much data and the things that you were kind of going to be working on in the future. So I'm wondering what, um, how, how much identifying those was because local teams were sort of saying, these are our priority areas, or whether there are other priority areas that they'd identified that you can kind of see internally, like this is going to be really hard to generate the kinds of data to meet the needs that they've asked for beyond the things that you've already talked about. Yeah, so very much the focus has been actually working really closely with, with local areas, local stakeholders to understand actually what are the sort of regular questions that come into us. And actually, if we've not got a route for meeting those, what do we do about it? So I think it's just really listening and, and making sure that we're aware and tying that in with other um, users that kind of come in through ONS through a range of other routes as well and making sure that there's a really good connection across ONS, but also across government um, to, to kind of do that two-way loop of what is, what is the gap, what's the need and how do we feel it. 
got a question from Tom, which follows on very nicely from that, which is, how do you support local authorities who lack staff capability to make more use of data? Yeah, it's a great question, Tom, and I think that that's why building capability is one of the key themes of uh, the support that we provide as ONS Local. Um, those, those seminar series, those webinar series are really well attended, and we are tailoring them in response to where we spot where there are gaps and where there is perhaps a, de a resource deficiency or where there's a skill gap. Um, so that is in direct response. And the more recent ones that we've been working with the Data Science Campus are about giving back, making sure that we're upskilling in those local areas. Um, how can they build their own dashboards? and um, what tools and skills do they need to be able to do those. I will add as well, I think the other side to that is um, all of the stuff that I talked about in terms of improved dissemination. I think having ready-made kind of easy-to-use products um, really kind of help with um, in areas where the capability is lower as well. Um, so making sure kind of, you know, the colleagues are aware of them, work, working with Becky to make sure that people are accessing using those tools and that we're using those stakeholders to inform our user research on those as well. Excellent, thanks. Let's come back to the room for the next question. I'm going to pressure somebody into asking one. We've got one at the back. Hi there, uh, Patrick Allen from Department for Education. Um, I had a question about your data sources. Are they all publicly available um, and do you, where do you pull them from and how do you do that? So, so not all of them are widely available. A lot of them are uh, we have three data sharing agreements um, that we, you know, get across government. So um, we do quite a lot of data sharing with HMRC and we use some of the VAT turnover data, for example, to apportion um, the gross value added regional statistics down to kind of a local level. Um, we also use um, data that becomes available in the Secure Research Service. So that's how we've accessed the longitudinal educational outcomes data. Um, and that is accessible to two researchers who have kind of been through our accreditation process. Um, in ONS. Uh, and then uh, finally, we do have some much more sensitive data, like the financial transactions data. Um, not, not because it's sensitive in terms of personal information. We don't get any personal information in there at all. It's all aggregated when it comes to us. Um, but it is very commercially sensitive, and we work very closely with those providers uh, to understand exactly kind of how um, we might be able to, to share some of that, um, you know, sort of more widely in future as well. Uh, the Next question is online uh, from Anonymous and follows on very nicely from that, actually. If there are local data needs that you can't meet with existing data sources, do you have the capacity to collect new data? I think that um, broadly, uh, ONS, uh, you know, does a huge amount of data collection through surveys. Um, I would, and, and I think that often a survey doesn't necessarily give you uh, the response rate to get the coverage that you really need um, at the sort of really granular level uh, of, of geography that we tend to be looking at. Um, and so I think that probably where ONS kind of has a really strong role to play is thinking about what data might already exist that can complement a survey um, and how do those kind of different data sources work together to give us the best estimates at the level of granularity that we need um, with a sort of confidence level that makes it useful. And I think about using sort of innovative methods to do that as well is a really important factor. And we've got a really strong methodological community to think about how do we bring those different data sources together to make them relevant and so that we can give back as well. Brilliant, thanks. Very quick final question. Hi, I was just wondering if you do any work with local skills improvement plans? 
so we, we are aware of them. Um, and, you know, we kind of talk regularly to colleagues in the Department for Education who are leading on, on that. Um, we've done quite a lot in terms of the dashboarding tools with, with the, um, the colleagues in DFE who are working on LSIPs. Um, but I would say we're not directly doing a huge amount um, on that. Um, however, there are, not my team, but there are other kind of teams in ONS that are kind of broadly working across the skills kind of area to understand, you know, whether we can, you know, whether we can get better insights for using things like job vacancy data from online job adverts and things like that as well. Well, we very much look forward to hearing some more detail in future data bites about some of those projects. But for now, thank you for a brilliant overview, Becky and Emma. Uh, and that brings us to our final speaker this evening, and that's Pratik. Thanks, Kevin. Groups of people, whether that's those of us in this room tonight or listening online, the colleagues we work with in our organisations, um, experts in industry and civil society and academia, members of the public out there, uh, groups of people are collectively more knowledgeable about any given topic than any each of us could ever be as individuals. That's the simple premise that collective intelligence is built on. And tonight in the next some minutes, I'm going to talk you through the really high level ways in which Policy Lab has been attempting to harness the latent knowledge that sits distributed across diverse groups of people in ways that can reveal where people agree and disagree, in ways that can encourage new ideas to emerge, and in ways that can inject fresh thinking into the policymaking process, which ultimately is Policy Lab's mission. If you haven't come across us as a team before, we're a civil service team housed in the Department for Education um, with a mission to radically improve the way policy is made by introducing design thinking, innovation, people-centred approaches uh, into government. And to do that, we have gathered a truly multidisciplinary team that brings together a vast array of expertise, including being able to use a laser pointer, um, into government. Because so the reason we are a multidisciplinary team is because we work right across the public sector space and have done for the nine years since we were founded um, in order to bring the various expertise that we, we have as a team to, to bear on the various challenges that government um, policymakers face day to day. And in, in effect, we sit kind of on the edge of the policymaking system and bring in tools and methods that are not usually associated with, with, with policymaking in two ways, really. To deliver benefit to policymakers and ultimately citizens in the given projects that we run, but also through them to raise the capability of the civil service as a whole to innovate and to be people centred. I am not going to labour this slide too greatly with this audience in mind, not least given the, the expertise we've got in the room on qualitative, quantitative data, as you've just heard. But a lot of what Policy Lab does drives towards a bit of a sweet spot between um, data sets at scale that we've heard about, uh, which might tell you what is happening, a phenomenon that's out there in, in the world, um, and then the thick, rich data that might emerge from methods that are around um, lived experience. The sweet spot we find in policy design often lies when you merge the two. And in future Data Bytes events, if we're invited back, we'd love to talk you through some of our um, more qualitative methodologies, such as around um, ethnography. Tonight, I'd like to focus on collective intelligence. Our work on this method really began a few years ago when our colleague Ed Fole joined the team from the national security arena, where he was asked to look into how innovative tools and methods might help 
breakdown, groupthink and senior dominance and other cultural challenges, which are not exclusive by any means to the national security arena, as policymakers will recognise. In the two years since um, Ed, Ed joined, um, we have uh, been working right across the public sphere uh, sector to bring in collective intelligence and serve better policy outcomes um, in collaboration with the policy profession, um, which is our kind of sister team. Um, and in order to do that, we've been experimenting with a tool called Polis, poll.is, which we may have come across. It's been used most prominently in Taiwan. Um, and for the rest of this talk, I'm going to focus on, on Polis as a tool. There are many other tools that can help capture different aspects of collective intelligence, as we'll probably touch on towards the end. If you've ever used Polis, and I'm hoping to give you a go yourselves at the, at the end, as a user, you are confronted with a really simple interface, a series of short statements that are declarative with which you can either agree or disagree. Uniquely in distinction to kind of an opinion poll or a survey, as a user of, a, of, of Polis, you are able to agree and disagree with existing statements, but you're also able to put your own ideas into the system. Um, and that's in that way, users of the Polis conversation get to take control of the discussion and take it in the direction that they wish to do. Having taken Polis, which is an open source piece of software, hooray for open source, um, we in, uh, and, and implemented it into, onto secure government uh, cloud. Uh, the way we use this tool is to kick off a conversation uh, with a small number, it might be 30, it might be 50, it's an art, not a science, small number of statements to kick off the conversation. And then we ask whether it's civil servants, um, subject matter experts or members of the public to join the discussion, to vote on existing statements, but to agree or disagree, and to add their own in. Now, being a civil service team, putting this on a government platform, we do uh, moderate the debate just to make th sure things remain civil and on topic um, and uh, non-partisan. But after a light touch moderation, we, receive, we release statements that people put into the platform back to the, to the rest of the users at which point the platform does um, some automated analysis, which I'll go through, um, allowing us to draw out a number of different conclusions from the discussion. This is Databytes. We have the obligatory screenshot of a, of a spreadsheet. This is kind of the core data asset that Polis as a tool churns out, and it only does so because we've implemented it on, on our own cloud system. This is a debate that we've just wrapped up where anonymized, here are all our users and here are how they voted on each of the different systems to either, uh, statements to either agree, which is a one, disagree, which is a minus one, or pass, which is a zero. So off the back of this data that um, the software runs some clustering algorithms to separate people out into opinion groups, right? Tribes of opinion, in other words, people who vote similarly on, on groups of statements start to emerge from this discussion. And crucially, because of the way we've implemented the tool, um, we're able to show uh, breakdowns of what each of those tribes look like. When you register for a debate, uh, when we run them, um, although in the discussion you remain anonymous, we ask people who register to share their personal and professional demographics. So we're then able to say that the different tool, the opinion groups that emerge, how are they breaking down by age? How are they breaking down by uh, professional status? How are they breaking down by seniority, for example? So we're able to do some analysis on, on that basis. And when we do our moderation, we also assign each statement a category so we can do some thematic analysis of, of what um, is emerging from the conversation. 
A really powerful element of polis as a tool is, of course, it gives you the, the different opinion tribes that have emerged and how they differ, but it also shows you what sorts of statements people are agreeing on and gives you a sense of consensus amongst different groups. And in terms of designing policy, that's often where you want to try and focus. Where are people agreeing on where perhaps they might not, where you might not have thought that, that they would. I'm going to really, really quickly walk you through a couple of well, examples of where we've used this. Um, we've run over a dozen projects. Um, I'll pick a few out and talk about one in a little bit more detail. We've used Polis with um, policymakers, um, experts, domain experts, and members of the public to discuss what the future of the regulation around the water system might look like uh, 20 years hence. We've asked a similar group, similar types of people um, about their views of matters of national security uh, off the back of the publication of the Integrated Review, for example. Um, we've just wrapped up a project where we've been talking about the future of the use of digital and data technologies in defence. And what I'll talk to you about in a tiny bit more detail is where we used it with um, people who catch sea bass never a dull day in Policy Lab. We asked people whether they were catching sea bass fish for recreational purposes, hobbyists, or whether they were doing it for a living, what their thoughts on technical regulations might be. And I talked about consensus there. This was a debate in which these two groups of fishers do not see eye to eye, I think it's fair to say. They often have opposing views. It was interesting to see areas of consensus emerge amongst those two opposing groups through this piece of software. And it's worth saying, as I am running out of time, one of the core things that we do with our collective intelligence capabilities is kind of plug it in to a wider project flow in which we will use things like, this is an example from the CBAS debate um, uh, project, where we took findings emerging from lived experience research, plugged it in as themes to our collective intelligence debate, and took what emerged into a kind of co-design process. We'd love to come back and talk to you about it in more detail, um, particularly in terms of how we're adding to Polis as a tool. It's an open source project, so we're contributing back to the code base. I'd love to talk to you in the future about how, what other tools we may seek to explore. However, we've shown the thing to some extent. I think the power of a tool like this is if you had a go. If you get your phones out, and I'm hoping this works for people online, and you scan that QR code, you should, in the next few minutes while we have a chat, be able to go onto Polis, see some uh, statements that you can vote on, and you ought to be able to contribute your own, helping you decide whether you may be able to use a tool of this nature in the work that you do. Thank, Thank you, you Prateek. We made the mistake of getting the applause while everybody was getting their phones out. Yeah. To... <laughs> Um, a reminder for those of you watching us online, bit.ly slash slidodb46. Great. So uh, let's start in the room for the first question. Um, we'll come down here first and I'll come to that row next. Philip Knight at the IFG again, and always enjoy a bit of interactivity in a presentation. Um, in, in the past few years, the Cabinet Office set up the Crown Consultancy, uh, just interested in knowing how uh, what Policy Lab does relates to what Crown Consultancy was doing. Can I plead ignorance? Uh, so, are, are we talking about the team that um, was helping work better with consultants? Yeah, I think as originally designed, it was uh, what intended to be an in-house consulting firm, almost. But then I think I think transitions to. I've got to admit, I've been a civil servant for some seven years now. It's 
genuinely the first time I've heard that that team mentioned. So apologies, that's my that's on me. And we do act as an internal consultancy, and our focus really is on bringing um, citizens' voice, particularly those citizens who are not regularly heard in policymaking, in, into government, uh, and on innovative methods and experimental tools. Um, sorry, that's not a great answer because I'm not aware of what the other team does. Cool. Um, just to confirm, the QR code worked online, Very which well is great news. Uh, and someone has asked if we can show the QR code again, and I suspect you're about to see it as we go to the next audience question. I'll go to you first and then you next. Hi. Um, you started your talk um, like talking about the positive aspects of, of groupthink, but I'm sure you'd accept there are also negative uh, consequences. How do you mitigate those aspects? Yeah, and... and to, to be clear, I think it's actually in a way to try and break down the negative impacts of when people in a given group think in a similar way, that tools like this can be useful. Because one of the important things that you're able to do is sort of democratise the, the way that people can input into policymaking. Um, if you hand this tool over to diverse groups, so civil servants, but you also bring in um, subject matter experts, you bring in members of the public, then, um, and you put them all into one discussion, because they're anonymous, they don't know which group they belong to. You're almost taking your day job hat off and you're contributing as a, as a human being. Um, we've experimented with a couple of different models to kind of deliberately address that. Um, I'd love to revisit some of that. What one um, debate we ran a, a while back on a matter of foreign policy was where we took um, civil servants and we took members of the public, had them use the tool separately, I think for a week, and then crossed over the ideas that had emerged in each of those discussions to, to, to the other. And I think that's another way you could use this to break down some of the kind of spiral elements of groupthink. Uh, for those of you online wanting the QR code, um, our very enterprising online audience has put the link into the Slido oh, question, so you can go there as well. Uh, we've got a question over there. John Spanton from uh, Valtech. Um, interesting hearing about some of the ways of working you were describing, which um, I think have got some parallels with some of the best practice set out in the service standard for digital service development. I wondered if you'd seen any examples of how the way you're working and those similarities have led to policy and digital service design coming closer together? Well, one thing of... Um, yeah, look, so a few really important principles. And actually, we've heard some of other really good examples of that kind of digital way of working tonight. Um, this is an open source piece of, of, of software. We feel it's kind of almost an ethical responsibility to contribute any improvements we make back to the code base. And our um, creative technologist who leads the development of, that, of this software, Brendan Arnold, it doesn't just contribute back to the code base um, in terms of the, the, the repository, but he's actually working with civic hacker, hackers and, and um, other open source code folks in uh, communities such as over at Newspeak House. So I think there's a really important principle here that given that this is an open source piece of software, um, we, we contribute back to that. And yet, of course, we are as, as much as we can be are, are driving our feature development and so on by, by, through user needs as well. And we're trying to adhere to those standard principles too. Should be clear, that's only one tool, right? There are, there are a number of other policy tools, but we found this to be really a, a powerful one. Great. Um, Caroline, next. And then I'll come to the back. Thanks. Caroline Kempner from DfE. How do you see this sitting alongside traditional user research? Augmenting, I would argue. Certainly not replacing. I think there's an element of which, you know, 
human beings, if they're in a user testing environment, sitting on a tool and asking how are they responding to a tool, or, or they're filling in a survey, or they're um, in a user, inter user research interview. There are, there are ways in which you might answer questions in a face-to-face -face context. That might be different if you're, if you're online. Um, we, we, we've learned a fair amount about um, the kinds of things that people are, read, are willing to put in as statements and something we've discovered across, my team's gonna chuckle at this, but I trot this data every time. Across all the different topics we've covered from national security to phishing to defense, doesn't matter the topic, 60% plus or minus, I think three of the statements approved through moderation are agreed with. There's something human, there's a tendency to agree with, to, to, to submit statements that we think people agree with and to agree with statements that are, that are put in. And I don't know if that's the case with other sort of methods. Um, but I think it would augment and, and complement methods such as user research, um, such as other sort of survey methodologies, um, and can add an a depth because of the machine learning that goes on and, and gives you the, uh, the tribes and opinion groups, gives you an, an element of depth that you can't get through other, um, through other methods. I think I saw a hand up at the back last time, so I'll go there. Um, I'm curious how good you find policymakers tend to be at contextualizing the, the output data, and if there's any kind of guidance or infrastructure to help them with that. That's a cracking question. Um, in, in a way, that's your, your, your policymakers' job, and, and, and to, to do that through all the different inputs that you might get. You're not short of inputs, often, as a policymaker. Um, a couple of things we have learned is that for, for certain partners of ours for whom we're delivering these findings, the raw information is what they want. What they want to see is the spreadsheets. What they want to see is kind of the, the raw sort of data dashboards that we might, might produce. And that's great for them to go on and run with. In a number of cases, we've developed um, the opinion tribes that come out into personas, like you would with user research, right? Um, in a number of cases, we've abstracted what's come out from a discussion into speculative design artifacts. Um, and that's certainly the case in a couple of the debates that I've discussed, and I'd love to share a bit more of that kind of publicly when appropriate. In some cases, we've um, just handed the raw data over, um, and in others, we've had to do a bit of interpretation or intermediation. And in a couple of examples, the, the policy partners have asked for us to draw out the policy implications that stood out to us as those running, as kind of the administrators of the debate. Different policy teams vary in their, in their, in, in their kind of aptitude for that. I'm going to take a quick final online question. Sorry to those of you in the room. Um, does focusing on identifying clustered tribes of opinion risk replacing the dangers of groupthink with the dangers of tribalism? Gosh, I think it, I guess it depends on how, the extent to which you triangulate the, the tribes and opinion groups that form here and put them into context with what else you know about the, the, the arena you're working in, right? Um, there is that danger, there's absolutely that risk, um, but I think it, it, it really comes down to how much value you assign to the, to the opinion groups, and the, the, the thing to caveat here is that to date we've been working with small numbers, so you have to work with real caution. That risk really would amplify when you came up, up to scale. Fantastic, well we'll definitely invite Policy Lab back after that. Pratik, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
A few very quick parish notices before I release those of you in the room to the reception outside. Um, we do aim to get video of this event up on the IFG website within 24 hours, but you can already watch it back as live on Slido. I guess you probably know it's bit.ly slash Slido, DB46 by now. Um, I mentioned we had uh, various party conference events, including on AI, which might be of interest to some of you in this room. Um, that's all on the website already. Our next public event uh, will be in conversation with Anna Sawa, MSP, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, that's taking place on Tuesday, the 24th of October at 12.30. Uh, Data Bytes will return on Wednesday, the 8th of November. Somebody online has asked uh, whether we'll be circulating the presentations after the event. We are hoping to update our website fairly soon to try and get uh, the presentations that we're able to share uh, up there at some point. Again, you can watch it all back on uh, YouTube and soon on the IFG website. If you'd like to sponsor a future one or speak, please do get in touch with us. Um, that remains, uh, all that remains are for three thank yous. The first is a thank you and farewell to Alex, our excellent events officer, who you will have seen running around uh, with the microphone and many of you will have dealt with um, and has helped uh, organise brilliantly the last 11 data bites, I think. I think you deserve some time off after that. Um, he's leaving us for passages new, but um, we'd like to say a huge thank you for all your work on data bites and everything else. That leaves me with two thank yous. The first is to you, the audience here in the room and online, some brilliant questions today. So thank you very much for coming along uh, and sharing your insights as well. But please do join me in a final huge thank you for our five fantastic presenters tonight. Thank you very much indeed.